Welcome to the first season of the Astrid and Mew Brand Lab podcast, where we will get a sneak peek into iconic brands through their founders and leaders. We will talk about their personal and professional backgrounds and also talk about various current issues they stand behind. I am your host, Ani Nam, founder of Astrid and Mew. This is a virtual recording, so please excuse the sound quality. This week, I sat down with Orla and Henrietta, co-founders of Rixo. I've been a massive fan of Rixo, and we've collaborated as brands on various occasions. So I was super excited to speak to them about their bootstrap journey, creative inspiration, and their approach to community building. So listen on. Welcome to the Brand Lab podcast. I'm so excited. So um, yeah, so how did you two come together? I know that you guys met um, in fashion school, right? Yeah, so Alton and I met at university. So um, we met at London College of Fashion. We studied um, fashion management. So it was kind of a mixture between, I always knew I loved design and kind of wanted to, I think you've either got a passion for it or not. And like vintage hunting from a really early age and like just love vintage pieces and just fashion really. And then I came to London, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I love business studies as well. And I studied that A-level beforehand. So I wanted a mixture of them both. And then it was actually on the fashion management course where you go into kind of the buying, the merchandising and kind of you get a year in industry there as well. So you get placed within a company. So I was at ASOS for a year and you learn quite a lot um, within the buying field. So that's where Aura and I were both in the same course that we met. And I kind of remember we just clicked straight away. Like we had a similar style, um, similar kind of like visions as well. We worked on this, we worked on a project together and it was very much a case of where you had to go and work for someone in the industry. We knew no, we didn't have any relatives or connections within the industry at all. Like we literally knew no one in London. So we spent what pouring down in the, in the bus. So, so, so when you went, um, when you parted ways and worked for someone else, did you always know that you'll come back together and start a business together or start a brand together? It was a placement year during uni. So it was a placement year that we did. And then we went back and did our dissertation and we were together um, we lived together as well and did our dissertation in that final year. And then Orla did some work at ASOS then. And then we then kind of pretty much six months after graduating, founded the business. Oh, wow. Oh, how, what, um, I mean, how, how did you have that courage to start? I think, I think we both were at a point where we either had to go into the normal like corporate structure of like buyer admin, buying assistant, buying, and we were looking at like people above us and going, actually, we felt really passionate about the product. Like as much as you can get experience and stuff, um, we just thought there's actually a gap for what we kind of believed in terms of the product. The thing is we never had everything worked out, but we both quite like positive people. So we just like determined to find a way and I think like like not like as much as you can like get full feet on things we just pushed each other on optimism is so important and entrepreneurship isn't it um if you're going to go into business with someone you've got to have someone who's in your way of thinking that you bounce off each other and I think that's important because if you had someone else who was like a little bit more cautious or worried like that would affect things massively wouldn't it yeah Looking back at me when I was 20 something, if I hadn't had any ex- corporate experience, I'd be, I'd feel so daunted to start anything. How did you, how did you actually start? Where did you know where to start from? We did have a little bit of corporate experience because I, so Henrietta was at ASOS in her placement year and I was at TK Maxx. 
they're both very different and both like different experiences. And I think actually just even that full year in industry, and then I obviously went to ASOS straight after I graduated, we both had a little bit of experience to know that that's not how we wanted to do things. So like in terms of like the kind of cost and the production side of things, that was a very much part of like our roles when we were at um, our job. So I think we made the most of our placement years as well. Like we were really immersed and like I could see the, the people above me and thinking, God, like there's so many things that I want to do differently and kind of they do do, but you also learn this isn't efficient or you could add extra onto the cost price and get something that was silk and like stunning. Mm. Um, and then along with that kind of our experience that we learned and we were both kind of feeling the same thing, like how's it working with your kind of placement and we're both determined, hardworking. And I think it was, we were at a stage of our lives where we thought we don't have responsibilities. We don't have kids, boyfriends, mortgages. Now really was the ideal like time yeah. to do it. Like there was no better time to do it. I think we thought in our we, To be honest, like, I think it was like, well, what'd you do day one? Well, basically, like, that is like actually what a lot of people want to know. We didn't try to overthink it. Like, I was still working at ASOS when we started the brand. We were working on evenings and weekends. So, like, every evening and every weekend, we just work on the brand. So, it got to the point where I had to, like, quit my job because we couldn't attend meetings together because I, like, physically couldn't get out of work. So, you just, you know when the time's right to quit your job. It'll become a- so, you were just, like, grinding it out. Yeah, there's, there's, there comes a point where you're like, I can't balance this anymore. So you don't think, okay, I need a date where I know I'm going to finish work. Or I'm going to do this. I think you just, and don't, you just go with it and then you just, it comes natural. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, obviously you guys are really good friends and you were um, housemates. Are you still living together? So no, we did until COVID. <laughs> yeah, so COVID in March, we, we stopped living together. So I went home to quarantine and then Ola moved in with her boyfriend into like an Airbnb. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So how do you, um, you know, stay business partners, friends, and also housemates at the same time? It just sounds really intense. You know what, actually, like, it wouldn't work for everyone, but it did work for us. Um, we didn't have energy wasted on like, what's the other person doing or whatever. And we just had a good way of working. And I think not every business relationship will be like that, but we were quite lucky that we did have that. We were good friends to start off with. We thought the same. We were both like 100% of our energy was everything we did was Rixo. And if anything, like our twin sister as well. So yeah. she lived with us. Um, and we more just became like sisters. Yeah. It just kind of, yeah so it's, like, that, it's that underlying trust that like both of you will do the right thing for Rick. So. And I think the thing is as well, that when you're friends with someone, you don't let problems boil over. Like I think sometimes in working relationships, people keep things and it's very like strategic in meetings and stuff. Yeah. We've got something we disagree with. We'll be like, just don't even have, we don't have that like problem where it's like office politics and stuff like that. Like if there's something we want to sort it out, it's more just like a sister relationship, I think, yeah. or like it's just a family. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, you can just talk things over. You can be direct. And um, do you sometimes fight or argue? We can be direct with each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's really healthy, right? You need that because sometimes, like, it's a bit like my sister, um, my twin. Like, if there's something she'll say to me, I might get a little bit defensive, but then I'll go, actually, you know, she has a point. It's not like either of us have an ego. We think our yeah. opinion's right. It's literally just like, no, I think this is better for Rick's or you think this is better for Rick's mm. and then we kind of like hash it out. And then, I mean, this happens very, very rarely. It's not like a, a... But it's a healthy thing. Like, not everyone can just agree on everything all the time. And if you did, we'd be honest. 
It's amazing. And I heard from one of the podcasts that you were on that you don't even have an agreement. You just have a fundamental trust in each other. Everything's just 50-50. That is amazing. I think it's more like we don't have investors. We don't have like every single penny that we spend on Rick. So we see as kind of our own. It's our own money. I mean, you mentioned that you don't have any investors, but uh, I mean, you've grown as such a global cult brand now. How did you manage to do that? Did you have financial support from your parents initially, or did you have a lot of savings? I think a lot of our listeners would be really curious on how you actually um, got that capital. Um, so we actually didn't have the money. I go on, so this we never went out. In terms of personal money and like what we spent was very little. But what we did do was when we'd done our first production, we, had really, we, got, we basically helped our manufacturers for free and they give us a 60-day payment term. So when we didn't have to actually pay for any production until we'd already started selling the goods. So that was the first thing that we done was like figure out how can we get a good cash flow for the first collection. We didn't have to pay the collection. I think it was until March, it was like basically after Christmas. We had a good few months to basically get the money to pay for the collection and we'd already sold enough to pay for the collection. So that was our first thing. And then I think when it comes to things like I think people can overthink things and think, right, I need a big fancy photo shoot. I need branding. I need a website that you can spend a fortune on. We literally did everything. We just used our own personal taste of what we like when it came to like a logo. We had like all our sister helpers on yeah. Photoshop. Um, we just paid like, two, we paid like 2000 for the website. Um, we paid a tiny fee for a website. It wasn't much considered. It was transactional. And there was a lot to do. Like mm-hmm. it was kind of good because if we hadn't spent more on the website, we probably would have wanted to change it six months time in it because you kind of learn in what works yeah exactly yeah I mean I remember when I first started business eight years ago I paid like 500 pounds um, <laughs> to a friend of a friend to develop a website and it crashed all the time but it worked it was a front and no one was coming in to buy anyway so we didn't need to spend like 50 grand on a website yeah. Yeah. soon that you want to change it but you change the strategy and your direction yeah. and the environment that you're working in changes so I think at the start just being so careful of your costs mm-hmm. and thinking okay I've got to sell X amount of dresses in order to pay for that. We were always advised that, oh, don't put your don't put your stuff on consignment with stores. But if you've got to make money and you've got to sell, you don't really have a choice. Like when you're starting off, you don't have the you don't have the luxury of going, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And then the day you've got to sell your stuff. That's so true. And even like marketing, you don't have a choice or like to be choosy or picky. But you were you were picked up by um guys like Netaporte really early on, weren't you? What how how did you how did you do that? That's like the dream. So we didn't for the first year. For the first year, it was literally, we just, we had a car. We drove around the whole of the UK, like literally around the whole of London, um, Brighton, everywhere, like Manchester. And we pinpointed all the boutiques that we wanted to be in to get the brand out there. So once we had like ticked off all the boutiques we wanted in the UK, we then realized that we needed to, we wanted international buyers as well. So we rang up all the sales rooms and the showrooms that went to Paris and had a wholesale show. And we didn't, we didn't understand at all. We were just like, so you show this collection, when does it deliver? Um, but then we realized where some of like, where we wanted to sit in the department store, we kind of researched where they were selling in Paris. Then we had um, a showroom with Polly King in Paris. And then it was literally just all and I standing there. None of the, I mean, we got walked past every single day for seven days and it was the most depressing seven days to think about it. <laughs> we'd get there really eager at like seven in the morning and stay there till seven at night to see if like one buyer would come and be interested and literally I think we picked up two buyers whereas everyone else was swamped and like and that was a collection they had a bought 
Yeah. So when we got back from Paris and then a border, we went into their office in London and done like a private appointment in their office. And they bought that collection, which was their one of their like best collections that sold out that spring summer. Oh, that's amazing. A good lesson for us to learn that just because buyers think, okay, well, no, that's not really right for us. It, it, it would be perfect for someone else. And actually they almost needed the like net a porter stamp of approval before they could show interest. So never doubt yourself, like just keep going with that. I think yeah, it's a good thing. Exactly. I mean, what, what I learned from speaking to buyers or department stores, I mean, nothing against them, but at the end of the day, they need to do their job and they need to make sure that they're not taking too much risk, right? They want to guarantee that sale. So they want a stamp of approval from net a or Selfridges or whoever. Yeah, the first question when we first went to the wholesale market was, where are you stopped at the moment? And how to start somewhere if you're not, if you're not stopped anywhere, it's so difficult. So I think just like all I was saying, just don't mm. lose kind of that motivation and passion about your product. If you really think you've got a gap in the market. Obviously, you're stopped in all the prestigious department stores and Netaporta and everything, but um, your website and your own social media and your direct channels seem to be so strong and powerful. Um, is that like part of your strategy like do you envision omni-channel or are you focusing more on your own channels because you also have your own store on king's road yeah so i think definitely like direct retail it's for us it's all about getting to know our customer and growing our community it's so key to even just when we first started like we always wanted to be a direct brand like within a month of launching the brand in september 2015 in october we had a pop-up shop and me and all worked in that shop every single day and we did for the other next three pop-up shops that we had in different areas of London. Through that, we could see who it was, who our customer was. They were coming in. They were all different ages. We have 70-year-olds. We have 20-year-olds. Like We have such a diverse customer. And from day one, we've always wanted to make sure that we're speaking directly to that woman, whatever age she is. So we've always used like an older and a younger model to really try and get that across. So direct for us is something that we both feel really passionately about and making sure... We're talking to that customer, we're engaging with them. So I think from Instagram, we we post a lot of our customers' imagery and they love that, they share it with their friends. So like, it's all been like really yeah. organic. Yeah, I, I really love that about your brand. It just feels really democratic. You have, you know, you've been using older models or like models of different races since very early on, like even before this whole diversity issue came up about, was that like very deliberate? So I think it's just like just been true to ourselves. It's like yeah. who we see wearing it, like our friends or our mothers or families or like there's people like even when we used to go on like press trips earlier on, there's people like in America that or Paris that would wear it and they'd be completely different and diverse and we love that. There's nothing nicer it's than it's not like someone. a it's not like a gimmicky press story, it's just like what we believe. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like a switch on and switch off, it's just constant like, I hate the idea if someone was to come in and say oh god I'm not your customer I'm not good enough or like oh it's too fashion for yeah. us we're not doing our jobs properly if anyone feels intimidated by us as a brand we really want to be inclusive and make sure just people feel like flattered and just like really confident in something and putting it on and being like do you know what I feel really nice mm-hmm. in this um, and all of us a lot of work on the fits and I think fit is very much a big piece behind the brand they're so flattering i just order one of your latest collections and they're just like so flattering and i love the fabric as well it feels so luxurious because even luxury brands now they use a lot of synthetic materials and when you actually receive them uh, a lot of the times they're not very different from what you buy on asos but with yours i can really feel that quality there's such a difference between like certain not to anyone but like i find it really frustrating when 
like you see brands that use polyester instead of silk there's because that's just a cheaper option and there are times where like i absolutely love there's some like viscose qualities that i love and um, there's such because all viscose is natural materials um and I, I do love that not every time i want to wear a silk dress because sometimes it can be really hot and actually silk sometimes can be a little bit um can not be good if you're sweating or anything in a hot climate you need something with a nice cotton poplin or something so because we want the brand to be quite lifestyle i think like the type of fabrics that we use is really really important and like there's so much time spent on getting the right fabrications um and even with linings and stuff like that i'm less concerned about the hanger appeal and more concerned about how it feels on a person so i think you get a lot of buyers and designers they're like oh but does it look good in a hanger but it's completely irrelevant to me it's more like how does it feel on the person yeah i love that about you yeah and i love how you're striking the balance between being aspirational and luxury and also like super approachable and democratic how do you maintain that balance and you know it feels like you've really managed to get that balance right i think we are the customer i think like you understand like i think when you live in like a society where you mix with like all different demographics and people's different salaries and ages and all the rest you just you understand what the normal kind of majority of the women we know would want like everyone wants to wake up and be really nice and be special and everyone wants to be a bit different. And I think as well, like not overcomplicating it. Yeah. Like there's, I think, and also educating the customer that if they are to buy a piece of bricks, they're like, yes, you can wear that to a wedding and look amazing and get compliments, but you can also wear it to work or you can wear it mm-hmm. at a weekend and wear it in different ways. So I think styling plays a big part as well and showing the customer how they, they can wear it in different ways. And even like, for instance, we have like our slip skirt, like our Kelly slip skirt that we've done now for about three years. Um, people wear that on our Instagram on the beach on holiday people wear it to weddings people wear and that it's literally so broad and that's not like a forced thing it's just people naturally fit that into their lifestyles and I think as we grow and evolve as a brand that's what we really want to do as women's wives really show people that we're not just an occasion brand or you think of Rick's like oh I've got a wedding coming up or the races or an event we really want people to see Rick's as something that they can get their wear out of and make sure that it is the value for money. Yeah, just complete value for money for it. And that's something also that we feel really passionate about is making sure that our retail prices are attainable. So maybe a younger customer can really save up for that piece, but then she can get a wear out of it for the next couple of years. Um, and then also someone that buys maybe more and has got a bigger income, um, they can buy pieces and they can wear it in different ways as well and not just keep it in their wardrobe for special occasions. There's so much more we want to do where we yeah. can show people all the different range of sizes. Like it's hard for us at the moment to just when it comes to budgets, like getting models, like models are more expensive nowadays. And especially when you've got a bigger brand, it's difficult to negotiate and have like friends model for you and stuff. So I think to get like six different models of all different sizes, like that is a big expenditure and a huge campaign for us. So I think we do want to show as much diversity as possible, but at the same time, we've got to budgets. Um, I'll get there. Yeah. And speaking of models, you said um, previously when you were bootstrapping five years ago, you used friends um, as models and customers as models. It, does that still hold true? And how did um, that whole process evolve? And I guess, how did your role evolve? Because you said you were in the stores all the time and presumably you don't have time to do that now. So with the models, it was very much a case of at the start, friends, people would so all I seen someone in the gym and I was just in her bra and pants and I was like, I'm a new model. <laughs> <laughs> First ever lookbook. So she's coming yeah. back. She's coming back in two weeks' yeah. time. 
the model that we shot with last week. We spotted her on the streets in Fulham, like literally around the corner from our house. Um, so I think just not been afraid. One of the models in our lookbook shoot, we were driving along one day and we saw her on, on North End Road and we were like, she's stunning. She was 40, but she had gorgeous cheekbones and she was just lovely. Um, so we always do like, we're always on the lookout and if we see someone on the streets, we will go up and yeah. just scout them ourselves. And so that still happens. Yeah, me. that's yeah. amazing. You're still hustling. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And all his so twin sisters. Yeah, my twin friends. sister's um, boyfriend, his mum model show the last show um, that's amazing and I think at the start you can use your product as currency so we just say to the models that we don't have like cash right now but do you want a piece of Rexel and they would like forehead over heels for like a gorgeous printed silk dress like they would do it like if they get access to the photos you've just got to be creative and just think is this something we can give them as well and not just not just take their time so a lot of the times in the earlier days we'd just gift all the models like pieces of Rexel and that worked for them and it worked for us. So it's kind of yeah. just being creative with the way you kind of negotiate things. Yeah, I guess it helps that you have gorgeous products as well, right? And I mean, aside aside from all of these, like I think you're really well known for your creative campaigns. Um, so the Fashion Week presentation that we helped out in where we did piercing, that was like super creative. And you recently um, set, up, set up a bus, set up your Rixo bus in Covent Garden, which um, I checked out. I couldn't get in because I wasn't an influencer, unfortunately, but um, I, I thought all of these are like so amazing and it doesn't look like, I, I mean, from a business owner, it doesn't look like you've spent loads of budget, but from a customer point of view, um, they probably find it super aspirational. So what, what are, how do you come up with these creative campaigns as well as products and like everything? What's your inspiration generally? Just when we have an idea, we're just like, right, let's make it happen. And because we don't have investors or sign-offs or different levels of hierarchy, mm. we can just make something happen. I think when you're just interested and you're quite like creative people, you're just always thinking of different ideas. Like you don't really have much limits in terms of like your thoughts. <laughs> We're quite, and um, we always kind of like think everything's possible. I mean, to, to, to me, it almost sounds like if you have an idea, you just do it. You don't think too much about it. Like you just do it and have fun with it. Definitely, like there's companies that are like, right, okay, let's put like, a risk assessment in place. Let's do this, do that. And I'm like, like things happen quick. Oh, things happen too quick. We're just like, that's by the time we've done the risk assessment, the idea is maybe a bit dated. So we're just kind of just like, okay, we've got an idea. I think as well, following your gut. Like if you have a good gut feeling mm-hmm. about something, then we tend just to run with it. Nine times out of ten, the ideas that we stick with, we really believe in them. That's amazing. Yeah. So you're like. You stick to your gut and you're really confident about it and then you just do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously, like, um, your team is probably much bigger now. Can you tell me a bit more about how the team is structured now? Yeah, so as we, um, as we kind of, so our first hire was literally someone that, she was a young, she was Talia, she was great. So she, um, yeah. she came to us and she didn't want to, complete her unicorn she was studying history about and she just wanted some hands-on experience so she was our first employee and she literally was just an extra pair of hands and it was to help us pick and pack the orders because the orders would come in in the morning from the website and then we'd, we'd be going to the post office and walking down to our local post office every single day and after like a year or two years of doing that we weren't able to then go to meetings or develop other areas of the business oh I can so relate to that because I used to do that as well I think I was picking and packing for six months before I hired um I mean now now our head of marketing and e-commerce 
uh, who Ben like started helping me on everything. Team's probably one of the hardest things, definitely. Because you never know like who comes first and then like does certain rules I throw people. Um, but you just have to kind of like figure it out as you go along. Things become quite obvious whenever you need like help. And how big is your corporate team now? Um, just 27. 27. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably at a scale where you kind of need to have strategy and I mean so some of the like boring step processes and things like that. Um what are your thoughts around it? It's good, you need yeah. you need you need it. So I think it's really good like when like just having some really structured things. It's just for like communication for the rest of the team because obviously mm-hmm. something can be in our head, but you've obviously got to communicate that and it's I'm not just communicating that to five people, it's communicating it to the whole team and across different departments. And between you two, how do you split your role or do you make all the decisions together? Um, Strategy-wise, we kind of make all the decisions together, but it's very much like, probably like after the first two years or so, like all of where I've done more the design route and then I've gone down more the marketing and I do all the social um, and more of like the event side of things and the press team. um, And then all is very much taken over. I think like when you're starting off, we very much like hold each other's hands and like we go to every meeting together and do everything. And then it got to the point where we just naturally took over different stuff. Because um, you don't have time to be involved in everything, right? Well, um, but in terms of like overall strategy and stuff, like we'll both be like, oh, I thought of this idea that I think we should do this or whatever. And then we don't sign stuff off. Like I'll still come, even when I do the collection, I'll still come to Henry and be like, what do you think? And she'll be like, oh, well, I actually really like this as well or not too keen on that. Or Henry will come to me and be like, right, well, We've got this marketed idea for like the the long fashion week and I'll be like, oh, well, did you think about this? Or I really like that part. So we still like consult each other, but we lead different parts, if that makes sense. And I think then it allows you to have someone's fresh ideas to come in and be like, oh, have you thought of this? And like, it's very much a case of we want that. And I think even just as we grow, like it's still figuring it out, like everything's not set in stone. Um, and as the team grows as well, it's like, okay, what areas do we need to, invest in what areas do we need more people in if like we want to become more of a direct brand do we need a crm system who's going to need that what ideas do we have so it's very much a case of as the business grows and i think when you're in a fast growing business things change yearly so you've got to make sure the team that you've got in place a year ago is that correct for the is that correct for the future and stuff so i think doing a brand is one is the most it's mm-hmm. the most difficult thing and it's one of those things you don't have experience in until you actually are in it and you do it learn from your mistakes right um <laughs> yeah and it's i mean it sounds like you you always have so many creative ideas and you do things like intuitively and you're just such naturals and you have so many creative ideas do you sometimes um have a block like a creative block at all yeah i don't have a lot of um <laughs> i just done for London fashion week i started off on another like kind of tangent and then actually it was just like this just didn't feel right and I think like in the past where I've been like under pressure to get collections out and like under wholesale and like sometimes it got it got to the point where we were very much under the kind of like pressure of like third parties kind of dictating what needed to be done I think we just it was kind of a good time to kind of like reevaluate what why you started the brand why you wanted the product to be a certain way so I actually just took a bit of extra time to like redevelop the collection based on just that natural instinct again. Um, and I get a lot better because of it. Do you have um, uh, some tips or processes you go through to eliminate that creative block? Yeah. Or it really varies yeah, depending? 
back to like look at inspiration and stuff um, and not just steaming into the first idea that comes into your head. Um, sometimes like you can get an idea then you just run with it because you feel like you're on a bit of a time constraint but sometimes it's better just to like re-look at it and then not just like rest on your first idea. Usually your second or third is usually the best idea. Well, not the very first or it's just a, just a bit of a journey. Yeah, yeah. I think just, just having that kind of trust that like, okay, something will come to your head, not getting too stuck on the fact that you can't think of it right this second. <laughs> mm, mm, that makes sense. And I mean, we, we've talked about your growth and your team growth and everything, but uh, like, t- how have you managed growth? Did you come up, wh- what are some of the biggest challenges you face during the growth phase? Because you've grown so quickly, haven't you? I think the biggest thing is, is obviously the team, but also like, you can get advice from other people and you can listen to other people, but sometimes I think you can get, you think, okay, we, we're now five years in, we're X amount of turnover. Do we need someone from a corporate background to then take us to the next level? And you can kind of get a bit swamped down and think, oh God, yeah, okay, we need this person. This is what you meant to do. These are the process you need. But then I think we're the leaders. We've got it this far in five years. And then, so I just think you've just yeah. got to believe in yourself. So I think just just believe in yourself and you, you know what's right for the brand. Like it's kind of mm-hmm. like, it's like your, your baby and your child, you come in every day and you kind of know what, what's going on and where you see it going in the next year. It just comes very naturally. Um, but growth, growth is really tough. Like it, I think you've got to make sure you give it your all. It's not, it's not something that you just think, okay, I'm going to set up a brand and like we were saying, it was not you do it for ego. Like you've got to be passionate about it because it literally is your, it's your whole life. Mm-hmm. Like you think about it 24 seven. And especially if it is a successful brand and then it grows, it consumes you even more. Um, so I think you've just got to be really set if you're going to start something up that you this is what you want to do for life. Like loads of people come to us all the time and think like, oh, have you got like a strategy to sell? And we're like, we are living like the, the dream. It's our dream brand. We've created something that's amazing and we love our jobs. So there's no kind of, it's not even like in the pipeline. So I think before you start something up, like people start brands up to sell, so that's fine. Just you've got to know kind of what you're in it for, I think, at the start. And then as it grows, and just take each obstacle as it comes. I think if we were to sit when we first started and think, okay, five years time, this is, this is what it'll look like, you'd be completely overwhelmed. So I think just take one day at a time, break it down to the next six months, and then it that way. Yeah, everything sounds so fluid and organic. It sounds so nice. But do you um, kind of have a five-year or 10-year vision in mind or an ultimate vision of where you want Rixo to be? Like, I think like growing our community, like direct community is like massively important and like globally. And I think also about like how we communicate our brand to everyone also like instead of us thinking internally in terms of our office, everybody knows that the brand's for everyone. It's about kind of like making the brand fit your own personal style and making yourself feel good like day to day, not just occasion. That's something that like needs to be like constantly kind of marketed and like, like communicated to the customer and like we're not there with it. And in terms of the product range, there's so much more we want to do, but we've got to grow a supply chain and we've got to do development and that stuff. Like we always say like when we want to develop an all product category, we don't necessarily we put a time frame in of when we'd like it to happen. But if it doesn't happen, then that's fine. And then there's there's other chances too where something happens quicker than we thought. So like the bus, for example, was a very last minute thing. We didn't decide oh, we want a bus next year, but then we had it. <laughs> so as much as we asked 
I love that we don't have restrictions where we've got to sign stuff off with investors and like a bigger team. We just go, well, that we just believe in that we're just doing it. And that way we just have flexibility and we're quite agile. I think as well, it's to the right things as well. So people constantly ask me, it's like, oh, why don't you do kids? So you're going to do men's? Like we get men asking us for men's the whole time. We get home wear the whole time. But I think there's so much more we want to do within women's wear that we've not even like tackled yet that we've got our hands full with that. So at least for like the next year, two years, we just really want to become known as a lifestyle brand, introduce wear out to wear denim, shoes, things that we want to go into and really make sure we're talking to that woman and we know that woman better than we do. I'm really looking forward to it, especially shoes and outerwear, being a Rixo fan. What, What do you think are the key components of building that strong community? Because, I mean, this is like something that I'm very passionate about in building Astrid and you as well. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what kind of things you think about. I think one of the big things is just being really like open with your communication and not too forced or like try hard. Like I think your tone of voice is really important. Um, and when it comes to that, like we're still like learning and like developing that when it comes to like e-com journey and our email and sign up and how that looks for our customer when they follow that journey. So I think just being really like, just sort of being quite honest with your communication and just natural. Nothing to force. I think then the customer, the customer now can, can swat it a mile off, I really do think. So I think it's been really honest. Yeah. You know, like practice what you preach. It won't be a marketing thing. It'll just be a natural thing that you want to include in all aspects of your journey. So we're not going to come across like too proper on the website and then like have completely different communication on the Instagram. Like it needs to be just a natural flow and like consistent between all channels. Mm. Uh, and what are your thoughts around physical retail? Because obviously you have a store in Kings Road. Do you have plans to open more stores? Yeah, I think physical retail, it's a great way for us, especially for someone to become immersed into the brand and like as soon as you go into the store, they see all the carpets, the furniture. We honestly, we still got our like living room table and the pop-up and yeah. injured. <laughs> and our sofas and, and carpets and stuff. I'm like, where's that carpet? And I'm like, oh, it's, in, it's in, the stock, in the shop. But I think that is, the customer can really come in and they get, they can shop vintage jewellery there. They can even buy the artwork on the walls. They can buy the little ceramic plates um, from younger artists. And I think that gives them the whole vision of Rixo and like meeting the shop girls there. Yeah. Um, so for us, retail is really important. Yeah actually opening a new store um next week in st john's wood for us when it comes to pop-up shops like small boutique stores work better um that's just one floor there's definitely something that um we don't believe is dead especially now you can get really good deals you just got to be like as well too like actually touch and feel and try the product on before having to buy online a lot of people still like that like if you don't have a thousand pounds to buy three different dresses to try on three different options, you're going to go into the store, especially if it's a special purchase. So I think we'll try and utilize the bus as well to be almost like a physical space where you can come and shop and try. So we'll probably do something around the UK and like turn around and you can try stuff on and then like kind of buy online, but you've got your right size and you get understand the fit and stuff like that. So you said that you're opening a um, pop-up in St. John's Wood. That, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you have a lot of target audience there, it being a wealthy neighborhood. But what are your, um, what was your reasoning around it? Because it's a very local market, isn't it? Exactly to that point. So um, we literally walked around the whole of London. So we looked around Fox Park, Covent Garden, Regent Street, Coho, Carnaby Street. Um, and some of the areas we've been in before, so we know how it trades. Um, 
West London, we already had our King's Road store. And then it was very much North London we've never been in before, like near Marlborough High Street and St. John's Wood area. It's a local customer right now. There's no footfall in Central. You can't open the store and be reliant on tourists. You need that local girl. Um, and it very much seems like a street where it had adjacency brands there. Like, there's a cool collective right next to it. There's our customer coming out of that constantly. It's like almost like a, like a tube stop. There's constantly women coming in and out of that all day for their classes. Um, I think as well, too, with, like, who are all kind of COVID and stuff. Like, most people are working from home with them, and it's so... I think local neighbourhoods are almost places where people hang out and do things more than maybe they would have even 12 months ago. So, like, that actually affects things as well. It's just a different way of life for everyone at the minute. And yeah, that's very interesting. We might not make any sales. We have no idea. I mean, you can't. Like, I always get really nervous because I'm like, oh, God, okay, this is something that I push. And I'm like, right, okay, we need a second store. Because to me, I'm just thinking, you know, you've got great, like, opportunities at the moment when it comes to renting a store out so for me i prefer to have our stock there and be gaining a new customer rather than it's sat in the warehouse and no one's seeing it and so we always want to kind of like make sure our stock is working as hard as possible for us and not just sat in the warehouse dependent on online sales so touch wood it i mean we don't know how it's going to work out but it's like- yeah but you 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 just got to test to see how it works don't you yeah, yeah. And going back to you too, um, I mean, someone said that every founder comes with a superpower. And I'd love to hear about what your superpowers are of each other. So Orla, tell me about Henrietta's superpower. And Henrietta, tell me about Orla's superpower. I think Henrietta's really good at like, um, not getting too emotional about like, um, negotiations and things like that. That you, Henry always sees it in a very like, oh, well, you know, they're getting a great deal. Like, you've got to see it from that point of view and not being too emotional about it. Like, I think she's very good at, like, the negotiating side of things and, like, weighing up that actually we're bringing value to that side of the deal in other ways. Like, that's... And then Orla's is definitely, like, the product. The product is, like, the backbone of Rixa. Like, Orla is obsessed with fit. Um, and it's just really changed the way I think a lot of women wear their dresses. Like, even when it comes to linings, like both hate linings but all has just become so passionate and trained the whole team up on the fact that that is not what we want and she just does it with such conviction and just knows exactly what she wants when she's looking at a garment and how she wants it to hang and I think that's all like completely self-taught as well so it's very much like all this passion and dedication towards the fit and the way something the way something fits because you have buyers come to you like all of us saying it's not saying oh I want it looking on a hanger all of them argue with the buyers all of them sit there and argue and to Sandy Brown as well which I think is like really tough to do especially when you know these people could be spending a big budget with you and they're trying to push you in a different direction trying to mould the brand whereas all of will stay really strong to what she believes when it comes to the product so I think that's definitely amazing yeah that's amazing I love it love it love it and finally um, how much of your success do you attribute to hard work and how much to luck? Uh, I don't think there's anything oh, that I don't luck. I, luck isn't given, I don't think no. luck is given to anyone. I think, I think as much as hard work is definitely a big massive part of it, I think the other bit you've got to attribute to as well is you do create situations for yourself by putting yourself out there. So that's not necessarily luck, but someone could work as hard and have no confidence in themselves and doubt themselves. And I think like, all business is based on relationships. And if you're going into meetings and you're unsure about stuff, even if you've worked really hard, you've got to really believe in what you're doing. I think like the belief is as much as the hard work as well. 
if it was easy, everyone would do it and brands wouldn't fail. It's not easy. Like you literally have got to sacrifice pretty much everything you want to make to work. And it doesn't just happen overnight, like when it comes to making a brand successful, because it's tough. Yeah, it's really, it's, yeah that's it's so easy. true. Belief and sacrifice. That's so well said. Yeah. Thank you so much, Orla and Henrietta. I'm so inspired and I've really enjoyed speaking to you too. That's wonderful. Your brand's amazing. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Astrid and You Brand Lab podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please do make sure you like, subscribe, and leave a review. And to learn more about the Brand Lab, please come search on our website, astridandmute.com. Thank you.